You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Hello, Canada. Happy Wednesday. It is good to be back in the chair. As you know, I've been off for a couple of days. Samantha's been off for a little while. We're all back. Welcome back, Sam. Sam has been back from a holiday hiking and... uh, Having some shenanigans in Vancouver, good? Yeah, no, it was a lot of fun. Went, um, visited my uncle in Cranbrook for a week and went camping and sailing and, uh, oh my gosh, a blast. (laughs) So much fun. To you folks listening to us out west, um, because we broadcast from the east, but we uh, broadcast with many of our friends in Victoria, Vancouver, and Kamloops and many others, um, you lucky dogs, we do love it out there. I just got back late last night from Montreal, where my wife and I took our, our our second kid to his first year university. He had just come off a 52-day whitewater Arctic uh, canoe trip with about eight or ten young people. And they, <clears throat> they were in the Arctic uh, on three rivers, the Horton, the Anderson... And then the Husky Lakes, which is the Arctic Ocean, the Bering Sea, and they ended in Tuktoyaktik. We hadn't talked to him in two two months, and he get by. He gets back, and then he's basically got a quick turnaround. And he's and and so I am. I will be candid. I'm a little shell shocked. I was. It was a late night. A lot of tears. Uh, both our kids in Montreal now at school, and my wife and I are like, "What happened? What happened? Days are long. Years are short." But they're ha- happy and they're healthy, and, and that's, I guess, all you can matter, you can do. Like, what is a parent's job, right? Raise your kids safely and love them and, and, and provide them a good education, and what else can you do? So we'll talk about that, though, later in the program, because I want to get to this cabinet shuffle, because I was up early uh, to, to make sure we were doing the CTV News special on the mini cabinet shuffle slash swap and what it means, and I'll tell you what it means in just a minute, not much. Hint, spoiler alert, not much. But I will talk about later things you wished you learned in high school to prepare you for the real world. Things you wished you learned in high school to prepare you for the real world. And we'll do that next. I want to take calls. Did you do you wish you learned how to cook better? Do you wish you had a better financial literacy? More job-focused skills. Maybe wider-ranging skills. Maybe just better habits, better organizational habits. one 855 or seven ten ten. What skills do you wish you learned in high school that you didn't and, and you had to learn later that you thought, I needed those. I, I'd prepare for that. I'd fix it. But just a couple minutes ago throughout the morning, um, Justin Trudeau announced a mini cabinet shuffle. And you might think, I don't care. And I would say to you, this probably doesn't matter except for one thing. And the war room is standing by to break it down. What happened this morning was that Philomena Tassi, the minister of procurement, had released a statement saying her husband has had two strokes and we wish their family well. And she needs to stay closer to home. And, and here is a Hamilton-based member of parliament elected first in 2015 who oversees procurement. Procurement is a massively complicated file. I think personally the most complicated file may be one of the top 
three most complicated files, I guess, finance in the government. And I'll tell you why, because the money's huge. You got to oversee $23, $24 billion a year in just defense spending alone, healthcare spending, resident spending, all the, like public works is massive, all the buildings, the real estate portfolio. So it takes a long time to get up to speed as a senior um, member of the PMO talked to me about this morning. And Helena Jasek um, is taken over. She was in a small-time uh, ministry, economic development for Southern Ontario. She's the former health minister of Ontario. She's a doctor. She's an MBA. She's got the qualifications for a complicated file, make no mistake about it. But it's going to take a hell of a long time to get up to speed on procurement because the Defense Department alone is, is crazy. It deals with so many difficult issues. The F-35, procuring helicopters, ships, the national shipbuilding strategy. These are multi-billion dollar projects that go slow, are overrun, and procurement's a mess. Let alone getting employees back to work after the bloody pandemic and saving downtowns of cities like Ottawa. There's nobody here. Get people back to work. So that's... So that's a big job. But so there was a personal reason, the personal and the political mixed. But let me tell you what you should focus on. So that's happened. You know it. It doesn't signify any larger strategic shift for Justin Trudeau. Why? Because he's only a year after the last election. And if he shuffled everybody out, if he shuffled his diversity minister, Ahmed Hussein, who may deserve to be shuffled after overseeing the debacle of hiring a known anti-Semite, and paying him over 130000 bucks for an, for an anti-racism program? Like, ridiculous. It is the ministerial responsibility. It's a mess. That's an embarrassment. That goes to competence. Not going to do that because it's only a year in and he doesn't want to show that this government is already a year later in deep trouble and needs a rethink and a reshuffle just 11 days before the Conservatives elect a new leader, likely Pierre Polyev. So they're ready for a new world. They've got a caucus retreat coming, a cabinet retreat coming. That'll be significant. Justin Trudeau has to focus not on mini cabinet shuffles. There's lots of distractions. When you have your third mandate, you are facing a change wave. And there are only... Two issues that if you are the leader of this country, you better obsess about and you better deliver on. One, the economy. It doesn't matter that we had slightly good news economically today. You might think, well, that was pretty good news today. The economy grew. Okay. But we got 7.6% inflation. You can't talk your way out of that. You cannot talk your way out of 7.6% inflation. It doesn't matter today that our GDP, our gross domestic product, rose at 3.3% annualized rate. Yes, we've got strong household consumption and business spending. We're getting the bounce back post-COVID. But, for example, Bloomberg had thought we'd get 4.4% annualized growth rate. So it's so it's not as good. And by the way, this could all fall below one and a half percent next year. So uh, let's not uh, put on our pom poms and have a parade here. We've got it. So if you're Justin Trudeau, you better focus on the economy. 
jobs. You cannot blame inflation. Oh, you cannot keep saying, you know, oh, they're going to have 18% inflation in England. England's a mess. Hey, nobody here votes in those elections. That's not, they're not, our, that's not our country. Yes, the U.S. has higher inflation. 7.6 is generationally high inflation. And, and even if they, if they have a gas and an energy shortage in the U.K., that comparison doesn't work. People here need to pay their bills. Focus on inflation, inflation, inflation. And the other thing is competence. You are facing a change cycle. Competence. Competence on a RiveCan. Competence on passports. Competence, competence on hiring in terms of these anti-racism strategies. Don't hire anti-Semites. There's a rule. Take responsibility for it. Competence and the economy. So it's not this cabinet shuffle, this swap was for personal reasons. It's internal. It means nothing in the big picture strategically. The big challenges remain. The economy. And all of you know that. Fix the economy. Inflation, government killer. And we'll pick this up in the, um, the war room. And competence. Now, I know there's a big issue after Christopher Freeland was threatened and bullied about safety, and we'll get to that. But make no mistake, there are two issues that governments rise and fall on. The economy and competence. Now, lots of other issues are there, but those are the two material ones. Okay, when we come back, I want your thoughts. What are the skills you wish you learned in high school to prepare you for the real world? 7101855-633-1010. Time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. What skills you wish you learned in high school? I was thinking about that because suddenly I find both my kids in first and second year university and they're learning, you know, they got to run their lives. They got to, they both work, you know, one tree planted all summer. She was up north. She's paying for university. My other guy just got back, and, and, and he, he worked at a tavern here, but he just got back from a, a two months of, a, of an adventure. They've got to figure out finances. They've got to figure out cooking. they got my, you know, we got a shop. Now, they know a lot. They're pretty independent kids. But what skills did high school you wish they prepared you for? one 833 or 71010, 1-855-633-1010 or 71010. I think partly I remember when I, you know, first lived on cooking. Like, you know, you start off basically eating ramen noodles and cereal. Then, oh, then you get, of course, then you get an egg. Then you have the crap food. I will make tacos and I will melt cheese and that you think. And then all of a sudden you realize you better learn how to cook and you make some fish and you make some you know, spaghetti and you make some sauce and then someone has a recipe. Actually, my son loves to cook. And what about things like finances? What about investing early? Now you can day trade. Do you think that they should have a, you know, take a certain percentage of every paycheck, even if you're just, you know, 
working to save and just put some small percentage of it and invest in the markets right away. I don't know. What what do you what do you wish? What do you wish that you had? Here we go. Dawn. I got Dawn in Ottawa. What's up? Uh, hey, Evan. How's it going? It's going good. Good. So just uh, very quickly, from a broad picture, I think a lot of this could be covered with what our parents used to call home economics, right, where they taught about, you know, how to cook and how to manage your finances, et cetera. But just a real quick story. My issue is uh, with credit and how it's not taught to anybody. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about it. I know this because I worked for 25 years in the car, or sorry, 20 years in the car business doing vehicle finance specifically. And you would be shocked how many people don't know what credit is, how they get it, how they get bad credit, how they rebuild it. There's so tell me, tell me what the big misunderstanding, like, like, give us a lesson. What do you, if you were, had a group okay, of high so, schoolers and you said, you need to know about credit. Here's the, here's the ABC real quick. Okay. Number one, you have to have credit to get credit. So that first credit card that you get, you have to have it and never use more than one-third of the available credit limit because every time it reports to your credit bureau, as it goes higher than one-third of it used, your credit rating actually goes down. Second thing, you can't get a loan. You can't get a car loan. You can't get any of those kinds of things if you don't have some sort of established credit. It doesn't matter that you've never borrowed money. That's actually a bad thing. If you've never borrowed money and paid it back, your credit report won't report that. Yeah, you're Number right. Three, by the way, by the Number way, when three. I when I left university, I was working as a tree planter. I was making a lot of money. And I like I do not want to borrow money. I was averse to borrowing money. And when I applied right. for my first credit card, they said, "Well, where's your credit score?" So I said, "Like I, I I had bought a car and I had you know, I'd, I'd done something and they're like, "Buddy, you need a credit score. Like you don't have FICO score or any of this stuff." And I'm like, "Well, I thought you're punishing me for having good fiscal management." And they're like, "Yes." You need a credit score. That's, and that was a good good lesson. Exactly so the, the, the third one I'll just really quickly point out is that um, if, if your credit goes down or you have collections or those kinds of things, the banks generally don't care how much money you make. I used to finance guys working at the oil patch out in Alberta, making $150,000 a year, but they had to pay 19 20% interest on their cars because they had so many vehicles that were repossessed and or they had different collections. It doesn't right. matter how much money you. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It really doesn't matter if you're not managing what's going on with your credit. Those things hang with you for seven years. Just last thing, if you're dealing with a collection company and they're calling you and they're saying pay us and it'll go away, that's a lie. They cannot remove it from your Equifax. And if you pay it, it actually recycles and starts from the day you pay it. So if you have a three-year-old debt and then you pay it off, now that debt is paid but it's still going to stay on your credit for an additional six years. Wow. Because By the way, you should teach, Don, Don, I think Don could be a regular teacher. No, but this is the kind of thing that I don't think the basic, like life skills basics, that people, they want to go out, they want to, you know, rent an apartment, they want to get a car, one 1010 or 71010, they're going back to school. What should high school be teaching people to prepare for life? And Don, I, I just can't thank you enough. That's fantastic. Those were great uh, lessons on on credit, which, by the way, is such a basic piece of knowledge, but it's so fundamental, right, to your life. Sam, did you get that? I'm, I'm speaking to Sam, our most recent graduate. She graduated from university, top of her class, I should say. Did you know about all this? Were you prepared financially uh, for your life? 
I would say, so back in high school, I mean, we had some classes that you could take as electives, but they were never um, mandatory. So I would say, yeah, that is something that I wish that was mandatory when I was back in school, you know, managing money, um, you know, well, we've uh, got, finances. Yeah, people say that mis- like um, basic accounting, debits and credits, balance sheet, income statement, cash flow statement, Mr. Available says all that. Evan, 1974, I was in grade nine. My mom suggested I take a typing course, pre-computers, most important course I took in high school. I remember my dad once saying to me, my dad was born in like 1935. As you know, he just passed. And, and I remember years ago in the 90s, he said to me, dear Avio, that's what he called me, dear Avio, this is not just the first email I've ever sent. It's the first time I've ever typed because he hand wrote. First time I've ever used to type. And then, of course, he went on to do it. Of course, Evan, accounting, accounting. Evan, how to man- I wish they taught how to manage money, how to buy a house, interest, stock portfolios. Political system literacy is another one. Grace says taxes and financial investment. Everybody says financial investment. Right? I, I think that's key. I think we have a financial literacy problem, and I think they should be teaching financial literacy in high schools. Law, uh, Debbie, what's up? I'll go to you, Debbie. What's What's cooking? Deb in Oshawa, are you there? Okay, I'll uh, go to Richard. I'll go to Richard. Richard, Richard, what's up? Hey, Evan, uh, I think uh, a useful skill would be uh, some, some kind of basic first aid. I don't know how many times it's come in handy for me, and I only learned it out of high school when I uh, started working through my job. And, again, it's just come in handy so much for little things and bigger things. And, what, and so what? So so tell me about that. How does it come in handy? And when did that skill kind of arrive? Um, so I, I joined the uh, the army uh, kind of in high school as a reservist, and and they taught right. us uh, basic first aid. And I was qualified when I finished school. And uh, my first summer working full time uh, with the army, I was on my way to work, and a cyclist got hit by a car. Right. And wasn't wearing a helmet, and it was it was you know it was pretty bad. And and without that that kind of skill, and without me you know by chance being there, that, that cyclist surely could have been injured far worse or even dead. Oh, did you? But by I, the way, I mean, that that, that is so key. I I'm with you 100 percent on that. That's a great skill, Richard. Just real quick, um, did you end up serving uh, out uh, the reserve? Did you do any more service, or how long did you stay in? I'm still in right now, and I still work full time. And uh, I've done a, a few things uh, here and there, mostly domestic stuff, uh, helping with floods and things like that. Well, thank you for your service. I, I, I think people like you are emblematic of the best of us. I appreciate it, Richard. And, and you're right; those skills come in handy. But thanks for your service to the country as well, and, and thanks for the call. Um, let's keep going. I got so many calls uh, on this at one eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. What skills should schools be teaching. Chad says to me in Oakville, they should be teaching about the market flow and order books, the true value of the dollar and inflation. I've got so many calls at 71010. Uh, when we come back, a bankruptcy administrator writes to me about what they should learn. But tell me, 1-855-633-1010, what should schools be teaching right now to prepare you for the real world? That's next.
authentic voices, real conversations. This is The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Have we ever found a topic here? What skills do you wish they taught in high school to prepare you or anyone for real life? A lot on finance. one 1010 or 71010. I will continue that because my text board is blowing up. So is the call board. But I will say coming up, it is 25 years since... Uh, Diana, the Princess of Wales, uh, died in Paris along with Dodi Fayed, her boyfriend, in the tunnel. Um, we will talk to Bill Kuhn, the biographer um, of, of the royal family, about the significance of that 25 years later. The war room is standing by, and we'll talk about some challenges ahead for the liberal government. Um, and we've got the death of um, Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev. This is a guy who, as they say, has outlived his legacy. He liberated Russia from the Soviet Union, the perestroika, finally the transition, the wall comes down, and Russia is going to join the family of nations, and now it's a pariah state again under Putin. What happened? And, and I can only imagine that Gorbachev has died with despair. And then we'll finally uh, end with a $300 million fossil. That's all, just a $300 million fossil, a 300 million year old fossil. Um, What skills do you think you learned? I can't wait for today. I think I wish, like I started a business after school with uh, a buddy of mine, and I wish we had better um, business skills just right out of the gate. So that's one. I do like people who are saying medical I, I took all my St. John's ambulance, and I continue to do those. I, I like that. We just had someone who served in the reserves. Um, Ken says parenting skills. This might sound stupid, Evan, but schools should teach how to fail. Except rejection. It's okay to lose. Every kid gets a trophy. Society does a disservice, says Chris. Yeah. Well, Chris, I, I lost a lot in uh, school. But I actually probably learned a lot from my humiliations. Kayla in Barrie, Ontario. What's up? Hi. Um, so I actually randomly took a finance course in grade 11 that was considered a math credit. And my school teacher then taught me so much that set me up for a lot of success for my financial future. And I'm 35 right now. And so that, that turned into like one of the most important things you learned? Yeah. He taught us about RSPs and how the credit scores work and how credit works. He actually didn't even own a vehicle because he was so, the other side, he was so hardcore, which he explained to us how vehicles depreciate so much. So we learned about that. So I never have bought brand new vehicles just because of the depreciation rate. And I would take out, when I went to go buy my first vehicle at 19, I went to a car dealership and got a quote from a car loan from them and noticed You know, my interest rate at my bank with a line of credit was actually less money. And I had the cash in the bank that I could have paid for the car. Um, It was only $15,000, but I was working full time at that point and going to school. So I thought I'll take out the line of credit with my bank with a lower interest rate, and then I'll pay it back within six months. So I did that, made more than my payment, and I had my car paid off, and then I was slowly building up my credit. Um, He also taught us how to take your RSPs and you can take out $10,000 of that and pay off your schooling and have that not taxable. So I did that as well after I was done. That's amazing. 
This could, this should be mandatory, uh, Karen. This uh, sorry, Kayla. This should be mandatory. Yeah. So I have a great credit score now. I save like crazy. I mean, I still enjoy the finer things in life, but I definitely make sure that I have a nest egg. And he would talk about that too. If you know, when you get older and you have a house, you want to make sure you have a nest egg for you know if the roof goes or the fi- the furnace goes or anything big like that, so you don't have to worry about mm. you know how are you going to pay for that. And still to this day, I'll never buy a brand new car just because of the depreciation yeah. well, rate. Well, I, I think a brand new car, car depreciates, in. what, 25% as soon as you drive it off the lot or something like that? Yeah, and I would buy, I buy Acuras or Hondas, which hold their value. And I know that when I do, you know, flip it for another vehicle, then I know it's going to hold its value more than, say, a, a Japanese car or like a Hyundai or something like that. A Korean, I kind of South that Korean in the back of my head. Yeah, although, yeah. by the way, Hyundai's are starting to hold their value. Uh, Kayla, great stuff, by the way. What a teacher. Um, you want to give the guy's name as a shout-out before I go to Karen? Yeah. What's his, his name? His name was Mr. Store, and I don't know if he's – he's probably retired by now. He was in Barrie, um, and he he didn't even own a vehicle. He drove. He took the bus yeah. to, to school as a teacher every day. <laughs> I like giving a shout-out to these folks because they change lives. Kayla, great stuff. Thanks for the call. Karen, you've been waiting. I love what you've got in mind here, Karen. What should – what skills should high schools teach that they don't that, – that people need to survive? Hey, Evan. Yeah, I was, um, you know, listening in on the literacy types, you know, the economical side, financial. But what about the emotional side? Like, this ties into the whole mental health crisis that we're going through right now because this isn't taught in school. And this should be taught even before high school. Like, you're never too young to learn about your emotions. I've been watching. um, That's the first one, like how to cope with stress and emotions. Second one is parenting, just like Kayla also mentioned. Um, I've been watching a lot of the Nanny 9-11 on YouTube, and it's just appalling how these little children, young children, are growing up to behave. And these parents are absolutely clueless. And these are simple, simple techniques like time out and um, just very simple stuff that I'm sure Hmm. at kindergarten you could understand because that's your emotions. Like nobody teaches us how to deal with emotions. Yeah. And And I like what you talk about stress management, um, which is a kind of, and and a lot of stress management is not just like, let's teach people how to meditate or something. It's teach people how to um, organize to avoid stress. You know what I mean? I think that's key. Uh, I love that. Yeah. And and the emotional literacy is so key. Oh my gosh, Karen. Great, great call. I got tons of them on the line. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. I love this. Um, uh, Pablo, uh, I know you're on the 401, 407, so you're paying some big bucks to uh, to travel on the old private highway. I will just say, um, let me just read another thing. Evan, I work as a bankruptcy administrator and credit counselor. I always tell my clients, make sure they pay your cell phone bill on time. Tell your kids to do it. Cell phone companies report to credit bureau, and a late payment lowers your score, says Lori. What's up, Pablo? Uh, I wish uh, teachers uh, would push, lean people more towards the trades. Um, versus going to university. Like, I, I make six-figure-plus income. I was very grateful for a great shop teacher I had in high school who said, you know, maybe university and college isn't your thing. You know, you excel at this stuff, you can make a great living. And I was grateful for him. Um, I, I've give been give his name. Give his, give his shout-out name, Pablo. Mr. Ashley. Hey, Mr. Ashley, uh, thank back, you. Back in, Kish, back in Kitchener, Waterloo. Um, and uh, I saw friends, they'd go to university, they'd rack up the four years' worth of debt, and then wind up apprenticing right after finishing university to get a trade uh, when they could have been making money the whole time and learning a trade and learning a skill 
never being out of work, you know, always. People want everything in the world, but they don't realize how this stuff gets done. And it's through tradespeople who go out there, learn a trade, and build you what you want. And, you know, everybody wants to be a movie star nowadays. And uh, it's, it's just I wish there was more promotion of the trades. We well, you're doing it. First we of all, I, yeah, listen, we need more trades. It's an absolutely in-demand series of professions. I really appreciate that, Pablo. And I can tell you're doing well because you're driving on the 407, which is not cheap. Uh, I, got, I got less than a minute here, Vince, but I got a ton of uh, folks. Vince, what's up? What, what, what skill? I wish they had taught me more about dietary needs. I mean, I'm 65 now. In the last two years, I've had eight... <clears throat> Excuse me, eight surgeries to blast kidney stones out of my system when a lot of them, at least the uric acid type, are preventable by not eating things like beets, certain types of nuts. But they don't teach you any of that stuff. And until, like, I never had a kidney stone in my life. Now it's making my life a disaster. It's, it's oh so, I can't even describe the pain. Oh, I've never Vince, had pain. Vince, oh, I. I Listen, man, I've, I had a friend that had them. Uh, I've th- I haven't had one, but I, a friend of mine had them young, and he, he said it was like beyond crazy pain. I appreciate the call, Vince. How to eat. Someone else said not just how to eat, and I think Vince is making a great point. Diet key to prevent health issues. Mandatory swimming lessons. I like that. What's wrong with that? that you know, because a lot of economically disadvantaged folks don't get to swim which is, I think, crazy. It's dangerous. All right. Um, 25 years ago, Princess Diana was killed. Why is it still significant today? We dig in. Where you meet the people behind the story. It's the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. This is BBC Television from London. Diana, Princess of Wales, has died after a car crash in Paris. The French government announced her death just before 5 o'clock this morning. Buckingham Palace confirmed the news shortly afterwards. Normal programs have been suspended while we bring you the latest developments throughout the morning. 25 years ago, Lady Diana... The people's princess, the princess of Wales, died in a terrible car accident in Paris. In this underpass that became infamous, she was with her boyfriend, Dodi Al-Fayed, who died in the tunnel. She was being chased by paparazzi on motorbikes. And the 36-year-old left a massive uh, hole in people's hearts. She was a humanitarian. Of course, she had gone through that horrifically public divorce with Prince Charles. This is 25 years ago. Now Harry and his wife are the subject of all sorts of controversy. So is Prince William. Thank goodness his mother, his, uh, her, her mother-in-law, the queen, is still with us. But the fascination with Lady Diana continues just last week. She was a a, a very simple 1980s black Ford Escort was sold in the UK for over a million Canadian. So what is her legacy? 
And has the royal family ever recovered? Bill Kuhn is a biographer and a historian specializing in the royal family, the author of Prince Harry, Boy to Man, and his latest is Mrs. Queen Takes the Train. Mr. Kuhn, Bill Kuhn, good to have you on the program. 25 years ago, that day, um, it's almost frozen in ember, isn't it? It is. I, I remember it very well. Maybe maybe you do, too. It was sort of a little bit like the day JFK died. I have a similar memory of uh, similar memory of that day. We all do. Uh, I don't remember JFK, but I certainly remember uh, Diana's death. Since then, the fascination has only grown, it seemed. To what do we attribute that? Well, <clears throat> her popularity was, um, in recent times, kind of unprecedented for a member of the royal family. She really connected with people who weren't ordinarily interested in the monarchy, who didn't have any particular interest in princes and princesses, um, so that I think she brought a whole new constituency uh, forward uh, into watching what members of the royal family were doing. Um, She had charisma that was unlike any recent member of the royal family. I was remembering to someone earlier this morning, I went to a Christmas party once where she was present and all the other members of the royal family were present as well. And although they were famous faces and they looked good, no one, none of them actually looked and felt as she did. She, she just had a kind of a glow and people, people, responded to her magnetism. You could just see her, her effect on people as she walked through the room. Did, has the royal family ever fully recovered, not just from her death, but the breakup, the messiness of it? Had that, It seems to me that you could almost divide the history of the modern royal family into two parts, uh, pre-Lady Di and, and early days, and then the breakup and forward. They are almost two different institutions. Well, yes and no. I would I would say yes and no to that. Um, yes, in recent history, there is no private secretary to a member of the royal family, to the Queen, to the Prince of Wales, to anybody who's forgotten this. And um, Diana's legacy will be remembered and will be part of their calculations every day about how they present the Queen to the public and how they present the Prince of Wales to the public and that kind of thing. But within the 20th century, the abdication was in 1936 was a similar kind of event which divided uh, royal history into sort of pre and post. So there have been similar events, but they're not within our living, in our living memory in the same way. I wasn't alive, obviously, in 36, and neither, neither were you, but that was a, a similarly divisive event. I think you're right. They Look, the royal family has been through some seismic internal crises. We know that. Abdications and this. This, this seems different. Uh, now, how do, you, how do you compare the moment? For example, look, Meghan Markle in a, in a, a magazine article recently 
um, was criticized by Nelson Mandela's grandson because she said that after she married Prince Harry, um, people danced as like when Nelson Mandela was freed from 27 years of political imprisonment on Robben Island. People were furious about her as a, her comment comparing herself in any way, shape or form to Nelson Mandela. Um, is, is this a different situation with, let's say, Meghan and Harry and what they've than with Lady Diana? I think it is because, I mean, Meghan and Harry didn't have as long uh, in the spotlight as a couple, and they didn't, they haven't attracted the same kind of universal approval um, that, that um, Diana seemed to have for such a long, long period of time. It's almost, I mean, the article that you're talking about, which appeared in the cut, which is, I think, a sub-brand of New York magazine. Um, by the way, not a very big magazine in America, in the American media, but that's the side, side event. I think that that article was timed <laughs> to come uh, at about the time of the Princess of Wales, the anniversary of Princess of Wales' death. And I think that Megan has somehow absorbed, you know, the sharp elbows of um, media exchange, which is characteristic of the Trump era. <laughs> In other words, she's not afraid to talk about grievances. She's not af- afraid to point fingers. She's not afraid to stir things up and be angry in um in public. And that's something that members of the royal family, even those who harbored our grievance, ever used to do in the past. Mm. It is a characteristic of political debate in the in the Trump era. And I think not just in the States, but in other countries, too. In the last moment I have with you, there are still questions about Diana's death, are, are those more gossip or are there real questions to be asked about it? I think they're more gossip. There was a thorough investigation, uh, both in France and in the UK, and neither of them turned up any, any, right. um, any evidence of, of wrongdoing. I mean, it was a terrible circumstance. The, 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 the circumstances of the death were terrible and surprising and still have the capacity to shock us 25 years later. But, um, but, but, but I don't think that there was any foul play. Bill Kuhn, biographer and historian specializing in the royal family, the author of Prince Harry, boy to man. Thank you, Bill. I really appreciate it. Folks, we'll take a break. The War Room coming up. Listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is the Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back. It is a uh, Wednesday midweek, and that is War Room Day. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. 
The War Room. And of course, as always, sitting in the War Room is Tom Mulcair. By the way, his War Room is probably the most comfortable War Room ever. It's a nice cottage and sort of a plush exactly. pillow, and he dispenses pearls of wisdom. But let's just let's just for the sake of the fiction, inside the War Room, Tom Mulcair, CTV political analyst, former Yazra. Also in a recliner, probably feeding himself grapes and drinking a soda, Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies, managing director of Abacus Data. Now, I should say, normally we would introduce Zane Velji, yeah. our dear friend in Calgary. Uh, yeah. We send our deepest condolences out to yeah. Zane and his family. Zane lost his father, and I've had a lot of communications with him. Um, Zane is off. His father sounds like an absolutely beautiful guy. Anything like Zane, who's brilliant and humane and compassionate and committed uh, to many, many good things. Um, we wish Zane and his family all the, our, our sympathy and love and condolences. No words really um, capture kind of the loss of a parent, as I unfortunately know too well, and many of us do. Um, but Zane, we love you, and we're thinking about you, and we wish you well. Yeah. Um, and sitting in for Zane is someone we also love and know very well is Susan Smith, the principal and co-founder of Blue Sky Strategy Group. Uh, and uh, she's someone who um, I've known for many, many years as our kids went to the same school. Uh, Susan Smith, welcome to the War Room. Thanks for having me today, Evan. I'm sorry to hear about Zane, but happy to help. Don't worry. As long as you drop big words that we've never heard of and give Uh-oh. us kind of $9 consulting strategy oh. stuff, then you'll fill his shoes easily. <laughs> Okay, well, you know, Tim Powers is good at the $9 words. I like the $5 ones that everybody understands. You know what's great, Tom? In consulting, you can still make a good profit off the $5 as well as the 7 That's fine. They, they don't just, just pick just these, these numbers randomly. Yeah. They're cutting costs. Uh, Tom, Tom, uh, there was a mini shufflet today, yep. uh, basically a swap. We know Philomena Tassi's husband's had two strokes, and we wish him well, and, and that's a family crisis. Um, but this was not a directional shift. What is no. the big, what does it say today, And but what is the biggest challenge uh, going forward for the Liberal government? Well, the biggest challenge going forward is putting in place people who are good at public administration because we've had a really long series of rough spots for the Liberals since the election less than a year ago. And Trudeau was very careful today, you know, being asked, what you have all these other problems. People gave the example uh, of transport. What are you going to do about it? Since the government came in uh, less than a year ago and it would reflect badly on him if he were to start moving things around. But I suspect around Christmas time, he's going to have to start moving some of the pieces around today's change i think it's going to work out well the government has put in someone who was a former health minister in ontario who is not only a medical doctor but is also an economist and someone with a master's degree in business administration not a bad calling card and so she'll be replacing philomena tassi and i think that trudeau is showing that in a key file like government procurement, you have to have somebody who understands how the government and the machine works. It has been a very rough couple of months. Over the summer, we had any number of problems in global affairs. You know, all of a sudden we found out that despite saying that Ukraine was guilty of genocide, correctly, by the way, um, we were cheering vodka uh, at the you, uh, the sorry, you mean Russia Russia guilty of genocide in, in sorry in Ukraine. I, yeah, I said, yeah. Yeah, uh, sorry yes we, we Canada says correctly that Russia is guilty of genocide in Ukraine sorry about that obviously and we we went to the Russian embassy and we were toasting vodka uh, because it was Russia day so some of this these mistakes have piled up the transport department having some of the worst airports in the world they're always going to say it's the fault of COVID-19 and other countries are having problems too, but I don't know of any other country, Evan, that has had as many problems as we have. 
Yeah, long, Tim, big challenges, third term, competence, inflation, those two to me are part of the uh, top of the issue. What's your view? Yeah, I'm a bit surprised that Al Gabra is still there. I, I get what you and Tom are saying about, you know, it would send a signal that the government's in trouble. But they don't need any more signals. They have been in trouble. Maybe they're hoping in the case of Al Gabra with the summer travel season coming to an end over this weekend that that settles out. But he has not been um, a strong minister for them, Sue. And Susan and I have worked for people, Crosby and, and Doug Young, in her case, who were probably two of the strongest transport ministers, he uh, he doesn't fit in that mold, and they need a strong transport minister there, but I guess uh, they're hoping um, the, the summer travel season ending will help that. I, look, I, I would throw, again, your theory, this curveball, and yeah, maybe you don't want to signal you're in trouble, but if you continue to have ministers that aren't performing in portfolios, and you give them another four or five months and their uh, lack of skill or whatever ineptitude continues, that's going to dig you a bigger hole. So yeah. you had an opportunity today. I'm surprised more was not seized with it. Yeah, I guess, uh, Susan, talk about the internal calculus. They've got arrive, can, immigration, all the transport stuff with Omar Al-Gabra. They've got a, uh, a simmering scandal brewing on hiring an anti-Semite for anti-racism. Um, I, I know that Melanie Jolie's faced it, but I, he's not going to dump Melanie Jolie after a year of elevating her. What's the calculus there of keeping this small? I think the calculus is that the prime minister uh, has confidence in his front bench. And he feels that they, you know, after a year have got uh, some momentum on their files. I mean, this is a year like we like no other. It's trite almost to say. Uh, but by just doing a simple swap with two very competent ministers, you, you keep a, a steady hand on the tiller on the procurement side of things with uh, Helena Jasek, Jasek sorry, and, and with Philomena Tassi, someone from southwestern Ontario, someone who's from Steeltown, uh, someone who's responsible for the economic development agency of the autom- around automotive, around manufacturing, around batteries, things that um, the government is looking on from an economic perspective. Absolutely, there have been some headwinds when it comes to airports that are not run by the government of Canada, which is Pearson, uh, about screening uh, CASA and having enough bodies and people in place. That, again, is not run by the government of Canada. But coming out of COVID, we've had labour issues. Um, something that is controlled by the government of Canada definitely is immigration. That's something that, and processing things, that's something uh, that they're working on getting done faster. So the government is is trying to, is working to, and the ministers who are staying in their portfolios have a handle on their portfolios and are putting into place mm. Uh, the, the what they need to do to correct some of these things. But I, I guess that's the question. Is, uh, like, like it, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's the question, um, Tom. Um, is the current bench, I know it's only a year old, but is should he be satisfied with it? Well, I don't quite agree with Susan's characterization of Canadian airports and security in airports not being the federal government's problem. I, I think that that's no, the reason why... No, I didn't say they're why... not the problem, Tom, but they don't run them. Well, I mean, let's be fair. They don't. (laughs) Aeronautics and airports are all things that the federal government is ultimately responsible for. They work through agencies and smaller things at the the regional level because they're in in charge of the direct uh, management. But let's not kid ourselves. The ultimate responsibility is with the federal government. I think that, 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 that that has to be recognized. With regard, pick your example of immigration. Last year, we had an astounding number. We had 1.5 million cases in a backlog. 
We've now got 2 million cases in a, in a backlog. So the real question is, what is that plan, Susan? You've just referenced, oh, the, the ministers are getting ready. They're putting in place these plans. All I've seen in the past year is that backlog growing. Massive frustration. You talk to anybody who works in the field of immigration, takes care of refugees, takes care of people trying to get into this country, trying to get simple papers. Talk to people in the university sector, how it's almost impossible to get the papers on time for students to start right now. So I, I don't think that there is any clear plan. And I do think that Mr. Trudeau knows that he's going to have to move some of these people around. Why he's decided to do not right. to do it now, I think, has more to do with him. He doesn't want to seem to have made a series of mistakes in putting that cabinet together. Okay, uh, let me take a break. Believe me, Susan, you we can respond at will here. And by the way, okay, this is the war room. So when you, I'm just going to say, jump in at all times. I mean, Tim's just laying low because he <laughs> fell asleep. Uh, Tim, Tom, and Susan, uh, hang in there. I want to talk about uh, two lead, a co-leadership possibility for the group. Come on, and maybe LNG, and also this issue of the climate of threats for politicians. We have to talk about that. Stay with us. Lots more to come in the war room. Holding the politicians and pundits to account. Now more from the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. The War Room is back in session. It's a Wednesday. Tim Powers, Chairman of Summa Strategies and Abacus Data Managing Director, Tom Mulcair, uh, young up-and-comer political analyst. I think he was the former leader of the NDP and a cabinet minister in Quebec, but, you know, he's so young, it's hard to believe. And Susan Smith, Principal, Blue Sky Strategy Group and a liberal strategist. Welcome back inside the war room. I liked when uh, Tom and Susan were duking it out a, a little there. In, but but this is actually, and I'll get to this, and I'll, and I'll swing to Tim here. I've woken up now, by the way, Evan. I'm awake now. <laughs> well, that's good. Listen, uh, believe me, anytime you can take a nap, it's fine. I'm, 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 I'm all for that. I'm not a daytime napper because I never sleep, but someone that can actually do it, I admire. Um, you know, like Tim and uh, um, Susan were disagreeing. Uh, they're having a debate. This is what we want. You, you know, Tim, the idea that when you disagree with someone, you get on a program, you, you go back and forth verbally, you deploy your best arguments. I get that. That's not the world we're living in in Canada for politicians right now. And I know it's happened with Christopher Freeland, and we've, we've spoken a lot about it. But now the question is, do all politicians need security? And is that the yep, state we're in? Uh, Tim. Uh, yeah, I think, look, again, look at Britain, right? And uh, we've seen uh, a number of examples now in the last two or three years. It was Joe Cox, um, who was in a rural British constituency, a, a regular MP, and I don't mean to diminish her, uh, but, but not a cabinet minister, and, uh, and lost her life. Uh, we saw another MP uh, in the last year that was stabbed there. It's sad to say, and I don't wish this upon anybody, but that violence is going to happen. I mean, look at the video. And I, I'm sorry, I, I won't use civil language right now, and I should, but of the goon. I'll call him that. The goon who uh, was gooning up, Miss um, Freeland. And then he puts out this TikTok video yesterday mm. reinforcing his goonish behavior. And why is he doing that? Because there's an audience for that, because he's celebrating it. We're living in a time where through social media and through the political discourse of most of the federal leaders who from time to time deliberately inflame people, 
uh, that it's more dangerous out there. Um, it, it, and, and, and I agree with Tom, what Tom said quickly there, but I think, yeah, it's, we're getting to a place where they certainly have to have an enhanced security. Let me tell you, and Tom will know this, uh, pushing a panic button is not going to stop somebody from smacking you in the head when they're standing mm. right in front of you. No, exactly. Yeah. First, of all, first of all, the, ca- the cowardice is outrageous. Well, the yeah, cowardice that, is you know, outrageous. You're yelling and, and you're bullying. The nature of it, right? Yeah, I, I, I just... still can't get over that. Sorry, I'll shut up after this, but I can't get over <laughs> that fellow. I mean, my goodness, if I were a bouncer on George Street, I, as I once was, I would have found a way to have dealt with that. Not that I'm encouraging violence, but that, that is the kind of behavior he's celebrating. By the way, yeah. um, uh, Christopher is speaking live right now. Uh, I'll go to you, Susan, real quick. Um, and um, she's take, going, going to take questions about all this. Um, l- let me just listen in just for one second, Chris. If, oh, we don't have her, but I'll, I'll watch. Susan, is it time to get um, protection for all ministers? Hey. Sadly, yes, until the tone and the temperature comes down. I think um, Tim talked about it. We're seeing this, this goon, I'll take Tim's word, that was premeditated harassment for the Minister of Finance yeah. uh, and her staff. That is completely unacceptable in any place at any time for any politician, for any human being. You cannot behave that way. Ministers and, and politicians um, have, have agreed. They put their names forward to be public servants. To, to represent people, to interact with people. and But safety, if, if safety becomes an issue, we have to look after them. Jagmeet Singh was harassed. Um, it's not okay. It's, it's, it's spread. Um, it's a concerted campaign. It's spread to journalists, women journalists, BIPOC journalists. It's not okay. And until that temperature comes down, uh, we have to make sure that people can do their jobs safely. Your life should not be at risk risk because your constituents have elected you to represent them at any level of government. And that's what Minister Freeland had to deal with. Minister McKenna's had to deal with it before. And we're hearing more and more stories, the mayor of Calgary. Um, basically, if you ask any female politician and probably a few male politicians yeah. as well, have they had that kind of fear? The answer is yes. And that is not okay. And the people and the leadership um, that is uh, egging that on or condoning it or not calling it out is unacceptable. And sadly, I think it's a reflection of the tone and the times. And I really hope we can get past this, grow up and treat people and allow them to function in a safe and respectful society that Canadians largely have. Mm. Yeah. And, and she is speaking now. Uh, I had the uh, Toronto Star producer and journalist Saba Edizaz and uh, on to talk about harassment of BIPOC journalists, uh, you know, Erica Eiffel, Rachel Gilmore. They've all been subjected and many others. Th- those are the two maybe front most, but also politicians. Um, and it was she's speaking right now, Christian Freeland, about when the guy said, you're not welcome here. Get out. She's from Alberta. Her family's from Alberta. Um, and she's Canadian. We're welcome anywhere. This is Tom, is there... It doesn't matter if you're not Canadian, Evan. Well, I agree with you. I agree with you yeah. on that. Tom. I think, Evan, that, that one of the things that should be borne in mind here is that this is a new era that we're living in. Not yeah. only has he gone on TikTok, but he gave an interview out west to the Thai, you know, a very respected yeah. online paper in BC, where he explained all of his conspiracy theories. So there is something super sublimely Canadian, but naively Canadian, in having your Deputy Prime Minister announcing a public event. I'm going to the City Hall to meet with Mayor Jackie Clayton, and on the way out, you know there's somebody who's going to try to make 
a show out of this because it was recorded by not one, but by two cameras. So that's what it was. They were putting together a show. It's Andy Warhol. It's their 15 minutes of fame. And I, I was a cabinet minister for several years in Quebec City. And I can tell you that for over 40 years, cabinet ministers in Quebec City have systematically had a driver bodyguard who is armed. Right. And it is something that people know about. So maybe there's a little bit less of a temptation to get that way with a minister. But I still can't believe that the deputy prime minister of a G7 country, Christia Freeland, was left with three young staffers who looked as, who looked really terrified when this was happening. She stood there and she, she, she walked calmly and she reacted, you know, just as she would to any citizen. But you realize that we have this wonderful naivete that we think that bad things don't happen mm. here. They do. Okay, um, real quick, Tom, I'm going to stick with you, uh, because this is important. The Chancellor of Germany was here. Obviously, yep. the Europeans are getting squeezed by the Russians. They're having a major fu uh, uh, fuel crisis. Actually, the fact that Germany is not relaunching their nuclear energy program in a significant way baffles me. The UK's got like 18% inflation, and their bills are going up 80%. Um, is, is there a Quebec LNG liquefied natural gas project that is like on zombie alert because it keeps dying and then getting up and walking again? <laughs> And Pierre Fitzgibbon, the minister in charge of these issues here in Quebec, has been telling people on background that if Legault gets back in, he's going to bring that project back. It's called Energy Saguenay. It's a massive LNG play up the Saguenay River, $14 billion project to, you know, to liquefy natural gas that would come in from out west. It was originally intended to go to Germany, but yeah. Quebec put the kibosh on it, and then the feds did. But Trudeau got questions on it today at his press conference, and he started doing the back crawl. He wasn't going to be pushed into a corner, one, because there's a Quebec election, and two, because he knows that this might actually come back in. So keep an eye on this one. Energy Sagne, it's going to be a huge discussion in the next few weeks. Uh, can you... Susan, just anything on that? I, these these seem like yeah. we lost we lost our window on becoming an LNG superpower. The U.S. actually snatched it. Is it too late to get back in the game? Well, I think we dragged our heels and and could have gotten things done, and we didn't. But I do think there's an opportunity here, and and this story doesn't surprise me. I know that the government of Canada, the Department of Finance, is looking at what every possible opportunity could be to help both our German and our European colleagues. I had heard, and this jives with what I've been hearing for several months, that the Quebec Premier is open to things he didn't used to be open to before when it came to LNG and helping Europe. I suspect his, his French uh, colleagues and friends in France have been leaning hard on Quebec to do its part. Right. So this does not surprise me. Uh, and, and I think it's the, it's the job of the Prime Minister and Premiers and people involved in these kinds of situations to mm. be able to be nimble when global right. when circumstances change just because uh, somebody said something based on a set of circumstances oh yeah guess what there's a significant war and europe's going to freeze i think we have to be able right. to potentially take a okay. step back and reevaluate we we only have two trillion cubic meters of gas in western canada that's it uh tim tom susan great to have the three of you inside the war room we do bye, have Evan. to take a break bye, thanks bye, for tom. that great to have you thanks. all Where you meet the people behind the story. It's the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. His legacy is enormous. He ended the Cold War and he welcomed Russia back into the family of nations. At 91, Mikhail Gorbachev, a man who changed history, has passed. 
but he lived long enough to see his greatest accomplishment curdled into despair, cruelty, and war crimes under Putin as the horrific war in Ukraine rages. Brian Mulroney, the former prime minister who knew Gorbachev and held him in high esteem, spoke to CTV and said this. President Gorbachev will go down in history as an iconic leader uh, and one who accomplished uh, a great deal for humanity. And yet, for all that, look where we are today with Russia. To to get the measure of the legacy and, and this... The tragic turn that Gorbachev, who risked so much in perestroika to change the Soviet Union and and, and, and reunite Russia within the, the kind of family of nations, Jeremy Kinsman, the former Canadian ambassador in Moscow and the European Union, the former high commissioner to the UK for Canada. And, and we also welcome Canada's current ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray. Gents, good to have both of you. Mr. Ray, Ambassador Ray, I'll start with you. Um, the legacy of President Gorbachev, who I'm sure you met on, on many occasions, and, and, and how you kind of measure what he accomplished with the Russia of today that he died looking at. Well, thank you so much. It's good to be with you and, and with uh, Jeremy. Uh, I, have, I did have a chance to meet with uh, President Gorbachev um, after uh, his departure from office. He came to Canada quite a few times. I met him in, uh, in Moscow as well. Uh, and uh, I, I think the tragedy or the, the, the fascinating story, and it really has become a tragedy, is that he was the key figure in the transformation of the Soviet Union. And it, events happened very quickly, as, as, we know, as we know they can. And uh, it's to some extent he was not able to control the forces that he unleashed inside the country. Um, and so, uh, the, the the when we talk about the legacy, I think it's complex because he did single hand, not single handedly. A lot of other people were involved, and and uh, the entire sort of Soviet system was uh, was collapsing all around him. He tried to resist some of it. Uh, there's a lot of people in many of the countries in Eastern Europe who still feel that uh, it all took too long and there was much hardship and many people died uh, because of the length of time it took people to wake up to the fact that the, uh, the game was over. Um, and of course he was not able to uh, sustain his, his legacy into, uh, into a post uh, Soviet Union phase. I mean, he very quickly uh, was, uh, was uh, superseded by events by the arrival of President Yeltsin and then the arrival of President Putin. Um, and as we'll discuss, I'm sure uh, now that he, he's uh, within Russia, he's he's not, was not a popular figure. And Putin certainly made it very, very clear that he never accepted mm-hmm. the uh, the end of the of of, of what had been uh, the uh, the Soviet era. And I think we're seeing the the legacy of that. I think we're seeing very strongly in the way in which President Putin has consolidated his power. But I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, well, Bob Ray, thank you for that. And, the, and as Faulkner said, the past never passed. And, and with Russia, the past has now unfortunately become the future again. What is the legacy of Gorbachev, Jeremy Kinsman, who you knew? Well, I, Evan, I, I wouldn't look at Gorbachev necessarily just through the lens of uh, the current uh, very serious difficulties uh, with Russia and the brutal war in Ukraine. 
Uh, you got to look back to what we went through, uh, which was, what, uh, 60 years of, of the Cold War, uh, to recognize uh, his enormous achievement. Uh, he didn't uh, himself go into what he did just to end the Cold War, uh, though that was certainly on his mind and certainly something he wanted to do. And I think more than anybody else. Uh, he was responsible for it. He did it because uh, he felt he was uh, responsible and able in uh, his very surprising accession to the maximum position in the Soviet Union to to change the way people lived and what they had to live with from their past as having been oppressed in the absolutely terrible 20th century of uh, that Russia went through. You know, uh, Americans uh, often, the Americans I dealt with, and those of us who lived uh, during that time uh, at, at those levels, uh, discussing this all the time, always sort of saw it as a, being a pragmatic conclusion he had reached that the Soviet Union simply couldn't compete with the United States economically, and so threw in the towel. Right. You know, a couple of uh, fairly smart ass guys would uh, say stuff like, uh, you know, we win, we won, you lost, get over it. But it was uh, they missed the point. Uh, it wasn't that uh, the Soviet Union couldn't have staggered on. It wasn't any in any dire straits. It was stagnant. Uh, but uh, but it could have staggered on. But he. That citizens of the Soviet Union were bearing a terrible burden an intergenerational burden over three, four generations of oppression, of terror, of literal terror. And he decided, uh, with the advice of Alexander Yakovlev, who had actually been in exile as Russia, Soviet Union's ambassador to Canada for 11 years, and then came back at his side as a principal advisor, that, that the priority of things to do had to start with what he called glasnost had to start with the concept and exercise an opportunity of freedom. It had to start with that because only then could people be in a position to undertake mm. the unprecedented transformation from the Soviet Union and communism to, to something else. Unfortunately, as Bob said, uh, the something else, they hadn't. Nobody had done it. You know, there have been a ton of books and theses and stuff about, uh, you know, how the capitalist system was going to become socialist. But nobody had written a book about going the other way. Yeah. And there was no game plan. OK. And we sure as hell didn't know how to advise them. Our advice of shock therapy and just open your markets and deregulate was uh, sadly uh, completely uh, insufficiently informed about mm -hmm. what their challenges were. Yeah, and, and may have may have led to the kind of kleptocracy that we saw in some ways. But I just have Jeremy Kinsman. I could listen to you and Bob Ray on this uh, for hours. Uh, Bob Ray, just so now what are are the liniments? Are the seeds of the Gorbachev glasnost uh, and what he, the vision of Russia he had? Are they still alive in Russia under Vladimir Putin? Well, not they're, they're not they're not alive under Vladimir Putin. They're they're alive despite Vladimir Putin. Uh, the fact is, is that within Russia, there are, of course, there are lots of people who uh, would like to see uh, a more 
a more liberal, a more open, a more democratic society. But unfortunately, the forces of nationalism have been unleashed. Uh, Putin has his own particular uh, recipe for an authoritarian, uh, very aggressive ethnic nationalism, which uh, which he's expressed, which I think is is, is wreaking havoc in uh, in Ukraine and elsewhere. Uh, but uh, yeah, there, of course, there are democratic forces within Russia. And what's what's amazing about about Mr. Gorbachev himself is that he never lost interest or faith uh, in working with those elements. He he never he never gave up on that idea. Yeah. He always pursued it, and that I think is what's remarkable about him as a person. I mean, history is is not it's not always great person history, but great people do change history, and he's one of them. Uh, yes, and yes. we hope there's maybe another one to emerge in Russia to to. to, to to change direction out of the terrible course that Vladimir Putin has led that country on and, and the Russian people on. But so far, it is the Ukrainians suffering the great brunt of that. Jeremy Kinsman, former Canadian ambassador to Moscow, and our current uh, Canadian ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray. A gentleman, thank you, ambassadors, for remembering a, a great man and what, what good luck you both had to, uh, to deal with him. I do have to take a short break. We will be right back on the Evan Solomon Show. Stay with us. Instant access to real people, real stories. The Evan Solomon Show is on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. So my son comes back from his 52-day whitewater Arctic canoe trip. And he's down the Horton River. Then they go overland for 60-odd kilometers. That's like a portage. Essex Five Clicks. Then they go to the Anderson. And then they go to the Husky Lakes. And he comes back and he's got a bag among his pack, which he's carrying is rocks, and he's got a huge number of fossils. And the fossils are shells and, and, and remarkable things. So he's really into fossils. So as I'm looking at these fossils that he's, this weekend, uh, we, 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 Sam and I come upon the story of a, of a teacher, a school teacher in PEI, who also found some fossils, maybe this one a little different. This is the most remarkable fossil story, which I love. Lisa Cormier is walking in Cape Egmont, and she stumbled on a fossil that could be 300 million years ago. How would she know? Well, the good news, a geologist and paleontologist was there that day, Dr. John Calder. And Lisa and Dr. Calder are both here. Hi, hello to both of you. Hi, how are you? I, I'm fossil happy. I love talking about fossils. I love these stories. This is so great. Like this, I, I just want... I just want to say, Evan, that uh, Lisa found it all by herself. Okay. Nothing to do with the discovery. It was just the excavation, digging it out, the hard work. Yeah, but th that's good. But the good news is it's great to have someone like, gosh, who could, who could figure this out? So, Lisa, let's start with you. What happened? What did, what did you see and what were you doing? Well, I was just uh, walking on the beach with my dog, Fanny, while visiting my in-laws. And like I normally do, I, I was just walking, looking for sea glass, and um, I look at the ground, and uh, I saw something coming out of the ground of the sand, and it was uh, a uh, weird-looking shape. So 
I thought it was a root or a branch or just something that I would normally find on a beach. But I then um, look at it closely and I realized that uh, it was a um, a rib and there was like a rib cage a and also a spine and I saw the skull actually. So <laughs> it was pretty pretty exciting. So you know right away it's not just your average. How deep is it? Like, do you have any sense of what it is, Lisa? No. Uh, well, I just know that they found another fossil in 1995 in that region, and I might stumble on something, but I, I didn't know that I would find uh, a entire <laughs> so-complete fossil. Um, I taught science, and I, I, I knew a little bit about fossil and the kind of rocks where I can find them, but... Uh, yeah, no, I've never seen anything like that. I, I'm not sure, quite sure what I found. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so you're walking along the beautiful red clay um, in, in on on the beach in PEI in Cape Egmont, and you see this. Dr. Calder, pick it up from there. What has she got? Well, how did you get involved? And, and what when you saw it, what happened? <laughs> well, <clears throat> I first saw it on, on uh, photographs online from uh, Laura McNeil, uh, a local uh, scientist, geologist, uh, sent me the photos. It went through sort of a chain of, of contacts. That's the way it is, small town, small small part of the country. And, uh, you know, ended up to me. And I, I advised the PEI government on fossil finds. So, um, I, well, instantly I saw it. It was like, oh, my goodness. You know, we we this is really important, and we have to get this out of the ground. Okay. Right so and so what? So you start digging to get it out. What what did you start to see was emerging, Doc? What is it? What did Lisa find? <laughs> well, uh, the, the the true answer is Evan. We don't know exactly. We do know something. We know it's uh, okay. Top down, it's a tetrapod. It's a four legged creature. Could be a reptile. Could be an amphibian. Now this is a time when reptiles and amphibians were just starting to separate on the tree of life. Uh, through evolution, and there wasn't a lot of difference, not the same differences there are today. And, uh, you know, there a lot of creatures have gone extinct, you know, and so it's not always easy to say, oh, this is a uh, whatever. And so in this case, we're, we're at a really crucial time in Earth's history. It's about 300 million years ago. This is way before the dinosaurs. But it's a real crucial time in the evolution of reptiles. And it's entirely possible this is something that hasn't been found before. And even if it is part of a group that's been found before, it's going to be rare. It is so hold on. Like, can we back this up, Lisa? Yeah. 300 million years ago. Wait a second. This is like pre, way pre-dinosaur. This is bonkers. And this is, this is incredible that you found this thing. Did you have any clue that you were stumbling on what, what could be historically one of the more significant fossil finds? Not at all. I, I took the pictures. I sent them to my mother-in-law, and she knew that it was something special. Um, and I, she's the one who sent it to send the picture to Laura McNeil. And then uh, Laura contacted all the specialists and, uh, and everybody. But no, it's pretty incredible. Uh, <laughs> I just, I, I still, I, I don't believe it. Uh, I'm beyond excited. 
Yeah, first of all, uh, I think in the last 300 million years, we've only heard one or two good mother-in-law stories as well. So this is also really significant. Uh, it's nice to get to rebrand the mother-in-law. See, that's uh, I think that's also really good, Lisa. So the, you found two good things here that are very rare finds. No, but Doc, on, on, on a serious note, give me a, give all of us a sense of what 300 million years ago, uh, what kind of life was did we have then and, and what kind of fossils have we found from that period? Right. So the, the world at the time was going through this huge period of global change, of global warming, like, like writ large. This was right at the end of the coal age when we had luxuriant rainforests and the, a real humid climate and started to move into a very dry, parched climate. And a lot of the wet loving species went extinct and the species that could tolerate the drought and the heat survived. Sounds kind of familiar today, doesn't it? But anyway, this is so the creatures that were favored were things like reptiles who could lay their eggs out of water. Not like amphibians were on the, the dirty end of the stick or the, the hard the hard part of the story. The reptiles were suited. The reptiles uh, did very well, of course. They that led into uh, the dinosaurs subsequently about. 80 to 100 million years later, some of those reptiles became mammal-like reptiles, and this may be one of those. And those mammal-like reptiles eventually led to mammals and to us. And so this is a really, really intriguing part of the story of evolution. And it's, it's, it's going to be really exciting to see how this emerges, what comes, what comes of it. And maybe it'll get a name after you, Lisa, the Lisa Cormier, the uh, Cormierologist. <laughs> we don't know. Uh, congratulations. Lisa, your eye is incredible. Like, can you imagine 300 million years and you, you discover something that's so exciting? It's so great. It makes me want to walk on a beach somewhere. Uh, and Dr. John Calder, geologist and paleontologist, thanks to both of you. I love this and... Uh, it just shows how precious our planet still is. Uh, thanks, both of you. I appreciate it. Oh, you're Thank welcome. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye how great too. is that? Imagine finding that. That is kind of my dream. I love any fossil is such a remarkable moment. But that one that Lisa found, that's great. Okay, that does it. It's good to be back in the chair. We'll see you tomorrow on the Evan Solomon Show for Sam and Chris and all of us. Talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>